0: I'm Josh Porter and this is the Van City Church podcast. The following teaching is part 75 in the series The Gospel of Matthew. Before the cross, before he's even arrested, the suffering of Jesus begins. Faced with overwhelming spiritual and psychological distress, Jesus bears his heart and soul to God, asking him plainly for a way out. In this breathtaking scene of painful vulnerability, we can learn what it means to suffer well and to go with Jesus into and out of our pain. On an afternoon in the mid-80s, I realized something horrible. My mom's sister had gone for a drive with her family that ended in a crash. And my aunt and my cousin, who was a little boy, who was, I believe, my age at the time, were both killed. And I didn't learn this had happened until after I heard my mother screaming. One afternoon after school, I was confused by the arrival of a family friend from church and the sound of my mom in the other room as she cried out in agony and disbelief. And I remember vaguely her friend holding her as she wept. At this early stage in my childhood, I had yet to see an adult cry at all let alone reduced to a grief-driven fit like this one. In the days that followed, my brother and sister and I stayed with a couple of different relatives and friends as my parents navigated the shock and the funeral planning. When they came back, they had gifts for us. I remember my dad handing me a Ghostbusters action figure and telling me it was both a thank you for being a good sport during all the chaos And it was also to lift my spirits, if not just a little, during this tragedy that I could barely understand at the time. I was very small. And I remember feeling vaguely guilty about my enjoyment of the toy, vaguely sad at my hazy comprehension about my aunt and my cousin and their deaths. But mostly, I was changed by the realization that agony comes for the adults that I believed to be impervious to it. They can be broken down, just like me as a child. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. If you visit Jerusalem, and if you travel to the Mount of Olives, you'll find a church erected on one of the spots suspected to have once been the Garden of Gethsemane. Some people call it the Church of All Nations, but it's also known... As the Church of Agony, I visited the Church of Agony a few years ago and like many locations throughout modern Israel that are alleged by tradition in the Catholic Church to double as holy sites, people from all over the world pilgrimage there for a sense of connection to that story that Ariel just read a couple of minutes ago. So if you ascend the steps and you enter the church and you move down the aisle between the pews in the sanctuary, you will eventually arrive at a big rock. And it was on this very rock that some claim Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the thing about a lot of these holy sites is that historians will tell you they've got a maybe but maybe not thing going on at best. And they'll tell you with a knowing tilt of their head as if to say, eh, it could be, but probably not. And knowing this, knowing that this rock may or may not have been a place where Jesus was, I could not help but feel incredibly moved standing in the Basilica of the Agony. Whether Jesus had been in that exact spot, on that exact rock a couple millennial prior or not, I knelt with the other tourists, and I touched the stone, and I remembered something incredible. And I thought about the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is an early statement of faith, maybe as old as the fourth century, that consolidates what was, for the authors of the creed, the non-negotiable articles of Christian faith. Look at this English consolidation of the Latin and Greek texts. If you are a disciple of Jesus and you're up for it, read this aloud with me. He suffered under. Oh, sorry. <laughs> back back to the first, the one you just had, Kaylee. That's where it begins. Sorry if my slides are out of order. We'll get it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The version that we just read, you'll notice, proclaims he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead. But other translations of the creed render that last line, he descended to hell. Now where exactly Jesus went and what he did in the period between dying and being raised is the source of some debate. Go look it up. It's really fascinating. But pretty interesting then that early in the church's history, relatively early, the idea that he descended to hell at some point was as core to their doctrine as, say, the virgin birth or the Holy Spirit, or that he was raised from the dead. A 14th century church document called the Heidelberg Catechism addresses this strange article on the creed and answers the question that we're all asking right now. It says, why is it added he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations... I may be assured that Christ my Lord by his inexpressible anguish, pains and terrors which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before has redeemed me from the anguish and torment of hell. Now notice the wording, his inexpressible anguish, his pains and terrors which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before. That's exactly what tonight's text is all about. Let's read again from Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 36. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, one scholar I read this week translated the line, He began to be sorrowful and troubled as, and I quote, He began to be depressed and confused. The two Greek words Matthew uses describe a state of severe physical, emotional, and psychological distress and vexation. The same scholar translated verse 38 as Jesus saying, I feel so bad that I could die. And that translation means so much to me. Jesus began to be depressed and confused, and he said to them, I feel so bad I could die. Please stay here and keep alert with me. Scholar N.T. Wright wrote that Jesus was like a man in a waking nightmare. He was a man, as we might say, in meltdown mode. He had looked into the darkness and seen the grinning faces of all the demons in the world looking back at him, and he begged his father not to bring him to the point of going through with it. For more than 2,000 years, belief in the divinity of Jesus has been the beautiful and mind-boggling mystic reality at the heart of what we call Christianity, that the creator God of the universe voluntarily embodied himself somehow as a human being. Next week, we'll begin observing Advent together as a church that so we'll talk about and meditate on God coming to us as a man at length. But the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, it's sort of a given when it comes to Christianity. Ask someone with only a basic awareness of Christianity what we believe and they'll likely mention that they believe Jesus is God, they worship. Jesus as God. But as outrageous a claim as that is, Christians operate under this belief as the presupposition by which we approach all this, this whole thing. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you are not a Christian. It's one of the most basic and core lines of delineation between Christians and non-Christians, at least in terms of intellectual belief. But what the divinity of jesus of nazareth Nazareth, logically and theologically requires the other side of that same coin has strangely perplexed and upended the faith of jesus disciples because what the divinity of jesus requires is the humanity of jesus jesus of nazareth was god and jesus of nazareth was a man the breathtaking wonder and beauty of what we believe is in the concurrency of both things. The very idea that the most powerful and supreme being in the universe would lower himself to become, of all things, a fragile human baby born to poor teenagers exemplifies the staggering wonder and heartbreaking beauty of Christianity. One master apprentice of Jesus called Paul described that wonder this way. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as the King, Jesus, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave them the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is God emptying himself, making himself nothing in the language of Paul to the degree that Jesus even dies a humiliating death the most humiliating death the Roman Empire had to offer. A term that we often use at Van City is that Jesus is God laying down the God card. God, God, for example, is everywhere at once, but Jesus was in one place at a time. God is all-powerful, but Jesus got tired and hungry and he even died. God knows all of reality perfectly, but Jesus had to learn. I think of that iconic line in Luke 2, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man, meaning he had less wisdom at one point and he got more of it over time. Jesus of Nazareth, in other words, was God and Jesus of Nazareth was a man. And one of the more bittersweet features of the gospel stories is that the most gorgeous demonstration of this cosmic both and is in a scene of tremendous suffering that God becomes, in Jesus, depressed and confused, that he feels so bad he could die, that in desperation he says to his imperfect friends, please, please stay here with me. In his commentary on the passage, Frederick Dale Bruner writes, the Gospel writers were never truer than when they avoided the temptation to paint Jesus as a hero superior to negative emotions or as a martyr above fear. The evangelist's aim was to convince their readers that Jesus is the world's Messiah and the divine Son of God, even when they knew they would have to tell of Jesus' ignominy, <laughs> his sufferings and execution. Shouldn't the evangelists have prefaced Jesus' bitter death with a brave scene of serenity. Why Gethsemane's unwelcome references to Jesus, depression, confusion, that he feels so bad he could die? That's a good question because us, we can't abide a God who would willingly become weak. So we make excuses for God all the time. We say maybe it was an act or Jesus is pretending in the gospel stories not to know certain things. When Jesus says, how long has he been like this? Of course, he really knows. He's just asking for them. Jesus asks rhetorical questions. We can't fathom a Jesus who couldn't know everything. After all, Jesus is God, and God is big and strong, and he's above the lowly rabble and scum of the human experience, we say. And as we are saying these things and mounting these defenses on Jesus' behalf, Matthew, the gospel author, writes in verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And it's interesting that for the second time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has selected Peter, and James, and John to behold something remarkable. The first time, if you can remember this far back, it was something called the transfiguration. It was this incredible physical manifestation of Jesus' divine glory. His face glows, and God's voice booms out from heaven. And the disciples are so overwhelmed that Matthew writes specifically, they fell face down to the ground. Now Jesus brings that same three to behold his divine glory in his suffering. And it is Jesus this time, the glorified master, who falls face down on the ground. And Jesus goes on to pray in verse 39, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now many of you, I realize, know this story. You know what comes next. And so we rush in our minds to the line that proceeds this one. But not yet read every word and sit beneath the staggering weight of them. The God of the universe falls on his face in agony and desperation and being the only person on the face of the earth who knows the detailed scope of God's plan to save the world, Jesus still prays, don't make me do it. He is, in other words, a human being. I was reading this over and over again this week and I imagined, alone in my office, as my eyes welled at the thought of it, if my own son were faced with unimaginable suffering and despair and he fell on me weeping, asking me, Dad, can you stop this from happening to me? And just the daydream was agonizing. Jesus famously asks that this cup be taken from him, the cup being a symbol of his suffering and death. Now, arguments have been made that the cup represents the wrath of God, but Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus told his disciples James and John that they would indeed drink that same cup that he was going to drink. So either James and John drank the cup of God's wrath at one point, and they didn't think to tell anybody about it, or Matthew and Jesus are being consistent with their symbolism, and the cup symbolizes suffering and death. At any rate, the incredible and unembarrassed testimony of the gospel author makes plain that Jesus asks for a way out. And this has so perplexed readers that for centuries they've wound themselves up in speculation as to the exact nature of Jesus' request. Some have argued that Jesus was unlikely afraid for his life. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Maybe he was just overwhelmed with the cosmic aspects of what was before him. The whole idea of taking on the sin of the world and confronting death itself And others rebut, no, you know, Jesus is a man, so he was probably actually afraid of hurting and dying, as any human being would be. But really, if it's one or the other or both, as I assume, what difference does it make? Jesus is in agony, and he asks, if at all possible, don't put me through this, God. And then, after this incredible demonstration of honest vulnerability, then Jesus adds one of his most cited quotations yet. Not as I will, but as you will. Now, in my experience, this single line of the prayer is among those infamous Bible quotes stripped of its context and used to violate the story's intention. Well-meaning followers of Jesus conjured up this quote like an incantation to nullify their own prayers by saying, yeah, but not my will, your will be done. As if God's will was this inevitable indifferent thing. And the best our prayers can do is to act as hopeful messages in bottles that may or may not harmonize with what God was just going to do anyway. Because we're so impressed with Jesus' prayer that in the face of death, he would tell God, not what I will, but what you will. But emphasizing that final line of Jesus' prayer not only neglects the bulk of the passage, it makes a fool of Jesus, as if Jesus' theology of prayer was so underdeveloped that he sincerely felt as if he had no say in anything, just wasting his time with everything that preceded this one game-changing punchline. There's a popular lie in the church that goes something like this. Prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. Now, of course, prayer changes us. I don't know anyone that would disagree with that, but it changes much more than that. Of this popular lie, prayer doesn't change God. It changes us. Theologian Dallas Willard once wrote this, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. Yes, Jesus has learned complete obedience to the Father to the degree that he is resigned to the trustworthiness of what God wants. But do not miss the sincerity of Jesus' prayer. Jesus actually believes that there could be be a way out and he is actually asking that it be so. Jesus knows the plan and he believes that there may be other possibilities and he knows that what he wants may not harmonize with God's will in this moment. So though he vows obedience, he yet comes before God in agony and asks shamelessly, on his face, feeling so bad he could die, he asks. In asking, Jesus bears his heart, his feelings before God without sanitizing or censoring them. And the story goes on in verse 40. He returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. This is when Jesus gets frustrated and sarcastic. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus had asked his friends to keep watch and to demonstrate solidarity with them, to be with him, and they fell asleep. This is so relatable for contemporary readers that it's hilarious. I honestly can't tell you how often I've heard the near universal plight of Christians floundering in their intimacy with God, who so want to get up early and to pray and to listen and to read, but not as much as they want to sleep. One scholar I read this week wrote, and I quote, the disciple's major enemy in prayer is often a cowardly preference for sleep. Ouch. So the encouragement goes, well, you know, get up early to be with God. And the pushback comes, but I'm tired, I like sleep. So the revised encouragement goes, well, in the day then, And the pushback comes, but I have work and I have kids. That makes sense. So the third amendment goes, well in the evening then, when work is concluded and the kids are in bed and the pushback comes, I want to watch shows at night. And I hear Jesus in his frustration, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? These are the disciples who just claimed that they would never fall away from Jesus. Peter, who just claimed that he would die before he denied Jesus, and they won't obey this one simple command, stay awake, keep watch, and pray. They are, in other words, so much like us, frustrated with our own spiritual stagnation, embittered by unanswered prayer, and yet will not demonstrate the bare minimum in discipleship to wake and to pray. And to further evidence Jesus' belief in possibilities, Matthew records Jesus telling them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Now, Jesus at this point in the story has already announced their impending failure. But Jesus yet believes that they can be strengthened to resist temptation, that their singular failure of falling away is not the only reality before them, and that there will be other trials ahead. This command also reminds us that Jesus believes the way disciples fortify themselves against temptation is through prayer. And he describes the struggle of the human condition, the willing spirit of the disciple, that true part of us being formed and redeemed and the part of us that actually wants the things of God, which is at war against the broken aspect of our humanity, the flesh. The spirit is willing, some translations read, but the flesh is sick. In verse 42, Jesus goes back to praying. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, then may your will be done. Now, what we think is happening here, as Jesus spends more time in prayer, this is not just seconds going by, it's an entire span of an evening, and as he's in the presence of God, as he's pouring out his heart, his will is being incrementally moved into alignment with the will of God as he prays and bears his heart. The first prayer was an honest one. I don't want this. Take it from me, but I will do what you say. The raw emotional honesty of where Jesus begins in prayer I believe creates the kind of environment for prayer that lays the heart before God and opens itself to the direction of God. In other words, it's only because the second prayer that Jesus gets to the second, or it's only because of that first prayer that Jesus eventually moves to that second prayer by saying, I want this, do this for me, but if I have to, I'll do what you say. That he moves into a place of, if this is what you say, I'll do it. In verse 43, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. This is actually hilarious to me because uh, the commentators all agree that Matthew is actually recording something akin to an excuse. Like he's like, yeah, I know this sounds really bad. We fell asleep again, but we were so tired. Our eyes were heavy. Verse 45, verse 45, He returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Resolved now, after praying for what comes next, fortified for it, Jesus stands, not to flee, but to move toward the fate that he had hoped to escape. Such was his unwavering obedience to the Father. Because Jesus is always better than we could have hoped. That he is like us in agony, but unlike us in his obedience and faithfulness. The hour has come, it's happening, let's go, here comes my betrayer. Now before we end, there's three things I want us to impart from this tragic story. Each of them have to do with following in the example that Jesus sets for us in this text. Us being his apprentices, him being the teacher, the example. It seems odd beholding a man in absolute agony, depressed, confused, who feels so bad he could die, and saying, we should be like him. But here we are, and yes, we should. Jesus, our teacher and Lord, Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah, face down in agony with raw emotional candor, telling God that what he wants may be different than what God wills. The example set by Jesus in the garden doesn't just give us permission to do likewise, it commands us to follow our Lord's example, not to contrive misery or embellish our own hardship or make faux martyrs of ourselves. God knows there's enough of that in American Christianity. The thing is, us American Christians, we're wealthy compared to the rest of the world. We're not persecuted for our faith, despite some desperate fantasy claims to the contrary. But the suffering struggle is the human condition. And the struggle with and against the places our lives take us and the will of God in them is a struggle that comes for every human being, whether you are privileged or not, whether you are wealthy or not, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of where you're born in the world, everyone will experience pain and suffering at some point. Now, in my experience, people tend to deal with the unsolicited struggle of life in a few basic ways. This is not an exhaustive list, but a few broad strokes ways. The first is avoidance. So you just sort of coast. And you watch TV, and you use your phone, and you avoid thinking about, let alone confronting, the fact that you're unhappy with the way things are, that things are not the way they should be. So you don't have the hard conversation with your spouse or your friend You don't call the therapist or you don't broach the topic with someone in your community. And you certainly don't bring all of it before God in broken desperation because you know he will not allow you to persist in avoiding it. Or you could really embrace your emotions, allow them to boil over and erupt in anger toward God and the world and people and there's no direction or purpose or intentionality in embracing the way you feel other than blame and hate and rage and bitterness and you start to talk about God rather than with God about how he isn't there for you and he didn't help you and you never talk with God about the fact that you feel that way and then maybe you just wallow in it you not only acknowledge your pain you welcome it until it engulfs you and you feel so bad for yourself and your situation that you're content to drown in your own misery on your worst day Which of these captures the broken aspect of your personality, or are you there now? Some of us tend to devalue our own pain by constantly comparing it to pain that we imagine is worse. So we don't allow ourselves to feel anything because we're hurting, but we figure, well, who am I to complain? I don't have it as bad as some other person. But pain is pain. How is Jesus leading you into and out of your pain? Jesus, unlike us on our worst day and our coping mechanisms, Jesus embraces the pain. In fact, he moves into the pain. He makes space, literal physical space and emotional space to fully feel and embrace his suffering. Jesus absolutely rejects avoidance He confesses his feelings to a degree that many would find unsettling and undignified to tell your close friends, I feel so bad I could die. Are you ready to admit that you're hurting, that pain is pain, and that you have it? Is it time to stop avoiding it, or running from it, or pushing it down? Is it time for you to have the difficult conversation, or to make the intimidating phone call, or to schedule the appointment, or to begin a series of scary prayers. Jesus embraces the pain, he doesn't avoid it, and he does it in community. This is huge and crucial. In fact, the entire story depicts Jesus as going out of his way to take on this trial with God and with his friends. On the night of his agony, in verse 36, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, not alone. In verse 38, Jesus says, stay here and keep watch with me. He asks for companionship. And again in verse 40, the Lord asks, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asks for those close to him to be with him in his pain. And he does not withhold his feelings from them or from God. Who do you need to bring into the honesty of your hardship? What have you neglected to tell God? And this is, as usual, why healthy discipleship and really healthy humanity cannot be conducted apart from community, an open and vulnerable environment with other men and women to process faith and discipleship and to confront pain and suffering together, not alone. And this reminds us of our responsibility to keep watch in our friend's hour of need. That community means to sit with someone else when their soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, when they feel so bad they could die. N.T. Wright said of this passage, at any given moment, someone we know is facing darkness and horror, illness, death, bereavement, torture, catastrophe, loss. They ask us, perhaps silently, to stay with them to watch and pray alongside them. If Jesus longed for his friends support, how much more should we? We should be prepared to give it to the fullest of our ability. And notice Jesus doesn't just tell God how he feels. He does, and that's important, that's crucial, but he seeks the will of God in his raw vulnerability. God, I feel this way. I don't want this. I don't want to go through with this. What do you want? Help me. Doing this can be terrifying for us because it presupposes that God might ask us to do something that we would rather not do. And we may feel in the weakness of the flesh as if it will destroy us. But the willing spirit within us can remind us that what God wants is ultimately always better, even if it leads us down a difficult road. When Jesus' hour arrives, having bared his soul and having come to a clearer understanding of God's desire for what was before him, Jesus rises and says, Let's go, it's time. How will we respond to the sometimes frightening call to obedience? Are you being called somewhere tonight, right now? The thing about this year in general and about the holiday season ahead, which is joyful for some and painful for others, is that all of us will arrive in Gethsemane at some point to suffer or to sit with someone else who is suffering. And when you see your brother or your sister entering the church of agony, your responsibility is to sit with them, to keep watch, and to pray The beautiful and bittersweet heart of this story is that when we get there, we will find Jesus, the Lord, has gone before us. That somehow the King of kings, the one to whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been given, came to that garden before we did, and he fell on his face, and he cried, and he pleaded with God, not this, please not this. So, when your time comes to pray this prayer, pray it, and you will be in good company. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to come speak over us before we leave this evening. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Vancity financially at vancitychurch/give.